Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. We're going to go ahead and continue into our series, uh, The Storytelling God. We do this on the last Sunday of each month. This is a way that we can not only uh, teach a story to the children of a character that we find in Scripture, but I think teach ourselves as well, to be re-familiarized with maybe a, familiar, a story that we grew up hearing or maybe even as adults hearing for the very first time. And so we're going to look at the life of Esther today. And so if you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be. However, I'm going to read in just a moment, have you stand, and the main text will be in Matthew chapter 10, just because um, I, I tried my best to figure out which verse to have you stand to, to begin in Esther, and we're just going all the way through it. So normally, uh, Greg and I do our best to get through a couple of verses when we preach, and when we, ever, like when we go through Joel and things like that, even Joel has been a lot of verses each week. And as we go through 1 Corinthians in our next series, we'll take it a little bit slower. And so today uh, is the opposite of that. We're going to go from chapter 1 to chapter 10. So hang on uh, just for a little bit, and let's see if we can do this. But before we jump into Esther, again, Matthew chapter 10 Verse 29, I know that you just sat down. Would you mind just standing one last time for the reading of his word this morning? Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, You are more value than many sparrows. This is God's word. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, we pray blessings upon your word today. Lord, that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word. Lord, convict our hearts, pierce our hearts, Lord, today with the true reality of who you are, Jesus. We thank you for this time, and it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted to begin in... Matthew, just in that bit of verse there, because the overarching theme of Esther is God's sovereignty. And I know that we've been, and it seems like the last couple of weeks, especially in Joel, we've hit on this topic quite a bit, his sovereignty. And as you think about it, it shouldn't be as controversial as it is, right? His sovereignty, that God is supreme, that he is the ultimate power. And yet, It is. It is a controversy. It is something that people debate over. Well, how sovereign is God? Surely he can't be sovereign over every single thing. I mean, there has to be something that he doesn't know or that he's not getting at. And when you read a book, well, like the Bible or or Esther in general, you will see that God is fully sovereign, in complete control, the supreme decision maker. And so here we have the woman, Esther, through the providence of God, is used to save the Jews from a genocide that we're going to read here in a moment. And 
just so you know, we don't know who the author was. It wasn't Esther. They don't believe Mordecai, her cousin, might have been it. But regardless, God is ultimately the author. And so we see this story begin. And we have to, again, as we read through it, we have to read through it through the lenses that God is sovereign over these things. And so if you have your Bibles, again, Esther, we're going to just begin in chapter 1 here in just a moment. But before we do, uh, again, kids, it's so great to have you with us. Um, I want this story to be something that you hear as well. And so uh, there's going to be some names that I'm going to drop throughout this. And do your best to hang on uh, with me through it. Because there are different characters and we're going to try to stick with it. I know that you're in here. Um, By the way, I, I want to also say this. Last week, each month... Um, Brittany Joukowsky, who leads our kids' ministry, she's back there with the nursery uh, now, but each month the kids get a a different memory verse and they spend the month uh, memorizing this verse. And and they're a little incentivized, and we're okay with that. They they get a little treasure at the end, you know, if they come and they have their, their, uh, their scripture memorized. But last week, every single kid memorized their verse. Would you just give them a hand? Uh, today that every single one of them, K to fifth, had their verses memorized. Kids, just so you know, you having known just one scripture puts you in a whole different field than most people that show up to church every single Sunday. That you are learning the word of God and that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Praise God that you are hearing and obtaining his word. It is such a joy and a makes me a little emotional to think about these kids hearing God's word and being able to recite it. What a powerful tool in their hands. Amen? And so we see in Esther chapter 1, we meet this king. And so I want us to uh, just kind of get to know him a little bit before we get to it. His name is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, okay? I'm going to do my best. I'm going to stumble over that a million times. I, I put it, a sticker right up here. Um, Ahasuerus, that's it. There we go. Um, and that is actually a Hebrew for laughing dinosaur. Now, that was a joke. <laughs> do you get it? Ahasuerus? Okay. Uh, all right, I actually did a little better than I thought it would, but uh, I don't actually know what his name means, but I just thought that was funny. I'm glad that some of you did. Thank you. Ahasuerus. Uh, Ahasuerus. Uh, what we do know is that his name actually to the Greek is Xerxes, and so if you, uh, in some of your Bibles may say that, I know that the NIV does, the ESV does uh, the uh, Ahasuerus, more complicated, but that's what I'm going to stick with today for the sake of our text But he is a wild man, to say the least. In fact, the Persians are really, really good at documenting details. They were in in history. And so we can even use outside outside of the, the scripture, we can find ancient literature that states some of the things that he did, some of the actions that took place. And so we don't get a lot of information about him in Esther. We do see that he has a temper or that he is uh, quick to make a decision and a bit foolish at times. One account that is not found in Scripture but is uh, confirmed and famously recorded is that there was a time where he was, his whole life mission, it seemed, was to try to take over Greece. And so they were 
constantly at odds with one another. And so he, uh, the king here, he decides that he's going to rout uh, uh, his army a different way to kind of come in behind another army here on the, the mainland side of Asia. And so what he does in the story goes is that there was this water that needed to be crossed. And so he had these pontoons come out and these engineers begin to construct a bridge to the best of their ability so that they could get across quickly and infiltrate the side that they were wanting to attack. And so the story goes that uh, the first time that they attempted to do this was a complete failure. And this made Ahasuerus very angry. And, he would, and he, it says that he went and he saw the, the destruction or how it failed, that the waters were so strong, the current had taken away what they had done, and he had the entire engineer team executed. And then not only that, he had his men go out into the water and take whips and 300 lashes were to be put upon the water. (laughs) They even were told to take handcuffs and throw them into the water to restrain them and to take fire torches and stab the water. This is the kind of king that we're dealing with here, a bit irrational, a bit wild. And so have that as we look through uh, this text but here it begins, and, we're, and he's gone away for this summit to plan this war. And when he returns, he declares that they're going to have this 180 days that's going to take place where he can really put his wealth on display, and then he concludes it with a seven-day outdoor feast. And it is during this feast that his wife, Queen Vashti, is called in to come and dance a provocative dance in front of the party goers there, the other men. And she refuses to do so. In fact, some historians say that they believe that she was pregnant at this time as well, but that regardless, that she wasn't going to subject herself to this sort of public humiliation. Well, the king doesn't like this. In fact, in Esther chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, saying, since they uh, will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. What he is saying is his nervousness to her disobedience, and so we don't know whether he exiled her or executed her, but she isn't seen in the narrative any longer. He does away with her. Just because of her one act of rebellion in his mind of her just disagreeing to submit to what he has requested from her. There's going to be a lot of takeaways that we can find in the story of Esther. I do believe that God's sovereignty is the, the biggest, greatest takeaway. But one thing that we can look at is that our king never asks us to sin. You hear that, kids? Like, he never asks you to, to, he never puts you in a situation that would be contrary to his word. As a society, and when I say society, I mean just as a church in large, it, it seems that the church is getting really confused about things that the scripture is very black and white on. That we're compromising in areas that the scripture says this is actually how it is. That marriage actually is between a man and a woman. What is the confusion? That abortion is murder. What is the confusion? Why, are, why do we have churches that are, that are contemplating, well, maybe God, no, 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 maybe God has already said. 
and we should stand in it, that our king does not ask us. In fact, Jesus says that his, in John 10 that his sheep know his voice. Why we uh, congratulate you kids in knowing your scriptures is because we know it's for your good. Yes, you, are, you got your, your toy last week and it's probably already lost or maybe broken or whatever it is. Those things go away and we know that, but the word of God implanted in your hearts is eternal. His sheep hear his voice and they know him. And so, Queen Vashti, back to our story, is sent away because she does not submit to what the king desired. And for two years, he is again trying to occupy Greece and he's unsuccessful in his attempts at times and to, to overthrow it. And he gets frustrated and he comes back. And in Esther chapter 2, we see that he is again wanting to have a wife. The idea is brought to him, Esther chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all of the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and so he did so. We're not talking about a small community here. This is at the time in, in the, the provinces that he is lording over, if you will, are 50 million people. So you can just guess that there's probably about 25 million women or so, and from that, he's going to pick a bride. And so in this instruction or in this desire that the king now has to basically have this Cinderella sort of story where all of these women are going to come before him and he's just going to choose whichever one he wants. We're then introduced to two Jewish cousins, Mordecai and Esther. In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her husband, or I'm sorry, when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we have this moment where uh, Mordecai has uh, basically adopted his cousin. There's evidently a, a big age difference there, as was usual. And there he is, there they are, these two Jewish people living in the midst of all of these things. Josephus, this is again writings outside of scripture, says though that there were 400 virgins that were taken to the king's palace and that they had a year, it's so recorded, that they had a year to begin to prepare themselves to get before the king, to present themselves a year of beautification, as it has said. That they were instructed on how they should speak 
on what they should look like, how they did their hair, their makeup, their skin was worked on, they dressed the part, they worked the part, they sounded like the part. This was intense training. Praise God that our king does not call us to audition. Amen? That we don't have to come before him having already cleaned ourselves. I know that it has been preached that way at times, and maybe you've heard it said that way at times, that you've got to get yourself together before you go and see the king. That's this king. That's not our king. Our king brings us without the, with, with the dirt and with the, 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 all the junk. And yet here is Esther who's been selected to be a part of this these group of women who's in this pool waiting for the king to make his choice. And so she eventually, after the process of getting herself to be adequate to be in the presence of the king, it says in chapter 2, verse 17, and the king loved Esther. He saw her and he loved her more than any of the other women and other women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the other virgins so that he sat the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants and it was Esther's feast He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts to the ro- uh, with royal generosity. I mean, there's this big celebration that takes place that she has won the pageant, if you will, and now has gone from this orphaned Jewish girl to now the highest power that a woman could have in the entire world at this time. And so we see that there is power that is work that is at work and i would say that it goes far beyond ahasuerus it goes far beyond his power this is a power that is being orchestrated even through the affections of this king that god is orchestrating these things his sovereignty at play and so esther is chosen as queen all driven it appears by her physical beauty and her charm And so we see the the narrative continues and Mordecai is sitting in the entrance of the palace and he's just waiting to get word on how Esther's doing, we think, or or what's exactly going on. Maybe he's sitting there for uh, just an update or maybe he's just hanging out. We don't exactly know what's going on, but he overhears a conversation. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's uh, gate... Uh, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. I'm going to mess it up a million times. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both charged on the, or hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Again, they're recording these things. This is important. I told you that the Persians were good at keeping details. This is no different. And so Mordecai hears the, uh, the plot to assassinate the king. These two had certainly access to him. They were the king's 
men. They were angry. We don't know if they were angry over what he had done to Vashti, or maybe it was war, or maybe it was just his personality. We don't know. But regardless, Mordecai hears the plot and reports it immediately. The queen gives the information to the king, and the king confirms, and as it says, they're hung on the gallows. And again, the important thing that you have to hang on to, because it's going to come up again in chapter 5, is that Mordecai's actions are written down in the king's records. Loyalty needed to be recorded just as much as disloyalty needed to be punished. And so we have now the introduction of the king and the queen and Mordecai having diverted some assassination attempt that was going to come against the king. And now we meet another character. Chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman. This is a man who had been exalted for whatever reason by the king. He was a, a Persian man. He was an Agagite. This is important because Haman the Agagite is mentioned and it is a small detail, but it is of great importance. In fact, you can go all the way to 1 Samuel and see that the Agagites and the, the tribe of Benjamin had great odds at one another. In fact, Saul is taken down. If you remember, Saul is taken down from the throne because he refused and spared the life of Agag, the king. Do you remember that they, they had him in their clutches and they were not able to do it and, and he is supposed to have destroyed them and God relents and says that he wishes that he had never placed him into command. And Samuel addresses Saul in this instance. And by the way, this is a thousand years before Esther's even on the scene. Samuel and Saul have a conversation about Saul's sins and Samuel rips his robe and says and reveals to him the disconnection, the separation that is now happening. And Samuel takes care of business. I won't, the text is a bit graphic. First Samuel chapter 33, verse 16, you can go there on your own, but he takes care of King Agag very well, takes care of him. And he kills him. But yet the descendants of this will recall these things and they'll be at odds for one another here for a millennia. Haman was a Gagite. He was, though hundreds of years had, have passed, Haman knew his history. And I, I think what makes matters worse is that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish, and Kish is the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, they would, he would have had even more right to have hated this man. And so again, we see that Haman is promoted. We don't exactly know why. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew." And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. And he disdained 
to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. It says that Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is him getting angry, drawing in that, he, that Mordecai is refusing to bow down. I know I've said it, I, I said it recently in the last few weeks that the, the, really the cry of our culture is not you can't have Jesus, it's that you can have Jesus but you, you must have everything else as well. That we have to be all inclusive, that everyone has to be included. That your faith is fine so long as you believe that every other faith is fine as well. And Mordecai drew a line and said, I will not bow down to this. Not bowing down. Certainly easier said than done, isn't it? Oftentimes we're put in situations where it, it might actually mean that you have to separate a relationship. That you have to maybe quit a job. That you have to not go to a particular environment any longer because you will not bow down to that thing. So Haman is furious. He's just as egotistical as the king is. That he, he is, takes it as a personal attack that one man, there's 50 million people, and this one Jewish man will not bow down to him. The enemy wants all of you, not just some. Haman wanted everyone to bow. And so Haman becomes furious, and he knows he's not going to just go after Mordecai. He wants to go after the entire Jewish people. He feels that they're a threat to the throne, and he convinces the king of this. He says, let us kill them. And so the king hands him his signet ring to Haman, and Haman begins making decrees that throughout the empire the word would be spread and that a date was established that all of the Jews were going to be murdered. There was going to be a massacre that he had planned the date in which it was going to take place. Chapter 3, verse 13, letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill to annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, this was the plan. This was the decree. And you can see the people begin to mourn. In, in chapter 4, verse 3, it's, it talks about them mourning and, and grieving over this declaration that death is imminent, that it is coming to them. And so the people see this day that is set before them, that their local communities, they're going to be slaughtered even by their neighbors. It says that Mordecai hears this and he wept and he covered himself in ashes and sackcloth, the mass murder of an entire Jewish population. Was this just payback? No, this was Satan at work. We, we also have to, when we see something evil, we have to say, that is evil. We believe in a sovereign God, right? We've got to get just coincidence out of our vocabulary. We've got to come to a place where when we do see right, we say that is good. And when we see wrong, we say that that is sin. Mordecai is grieved at the work that the enemy And it didn't take long for the news to reach Esther. 
Mordecai gives Esther papers and, and shows the, the plan that has, that has taken place that her now husband has signed off on. And so he says to Esther, you've got to do something. You're the only one that has the connection. You're the only one that has the, the inside route in order to, to have his ear, to have his attention. Go and talk to your husband. And that might seem simple enough, but you have to understand the culture. You have to understand how the kingdom in this situation actually works. That it isn't possible for anyone to just walk into the king's presence without an invitation. They would be killed right on the spot, even the queen. I mean, Esther says this in chapter 4, verse 11. She says, And all the king's servants and the, pe- and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside of the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called into the king these 30 days. She's saying, it's been a month I haven't even seen him. I don't get called into there regularly. She's telling Mordecai, like, look, I understand there's a, ma- a major problem, but I haven't been invited. I can't just go into his presence. Mordecai convinces her, listen, we are definitely dead if you don't you as well, that you are a Jew and he's going to uphold his word. So you have to take the chance. You're, you're dead if you don't. You're dead if you do in a way. And, and so he continues. Look at our, yeah, in verse 13, then Mordecai told, replied to Esther, do you think of yourself that in the king's palace that you will escape any more than the rest of the Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and de- deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Then he affirms God's sovereignty. He says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. When Kelsey and I got married, I was working with an older lady who was extremely frustrated at the idea that me and my newlywed wife wanted to one day have children. She was a Christian, and we would talk about the Lord all the time, but that was a topic she never wanted to hear me talk about because she would say, why would you bring children into this world, into the state of this world? Well, because we trust the Lord. These kids, are, these kids are, are hearing God's word now and they're, they're even grasping it and being able to recite it and they were born for just this time. God knew before the foundations of the earth their birth date and their whole lives. And so we can rejoice at, at the, the arrival of our children because we believe in the sovereign God who gifts them to us. Who knows? Maybe you were born for just the time as this. He continues, look at verse 16. Go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
some courage Esther is showing, isn't there? There's some, there's some boldness. Even if it costs her life, she is going to do what she can to protect her people. Esther doesn't, she doesn't specifically mention prayer here, but to mention fasting, prayer goes alongside, and so they call upon the Lord. And so she's preparing herself to go before the king. Praise God, we don't serve a fickle king. That he isn't just uh, you know, swinging back and forth in emotion. He doesn't have to, we don't have to wake up each day and see what kind of mood our God is in. But here Esther is praying all of those things. I'm, I'm certain she's praying, Lord, let him be in a good mood today. Lord, I hope his team won yesterday. Like, you know, Lord, just make sure that everything's going well, that he's had a good breakfast, that I'm sure she's praying all of these little things that would impact the mood of this king. And so here we have the moment of truth. It says that in chapter 1 of verse, or I'm sorry, of chap, um, chapter 5, verse 1, it says that she goes into the king's palace she goes into the king's quarters, and then she approaches the king's throne. Some commentaries say that this is to emphasize that she is literally entering into another world. And so she enters into the king's court without his permission. I'm sure the most nervous she's ever been in her entire life, far more than the... the pageant that she had been a part of and the preparation for all of that in this moment she's nervous to be before the king that she has not been invited to see and the scripture says that when she walks in he extends his scepter and he and she finds favor in his eyes and then he asks her a question and the king said to her what is it queen esther what is your request and it shall be given to you even up to half of my kingdom. We don't know what Esther looked like, but she must have been outrageously beautiful, right? I mean, he just sees her as like half the kingdom. Whatever you would like, Queen Esther. Like, I know that no one invited you, but it's good to see you. And so she doesn't want half the kingdom, she doesn't want any of the kingdom. She wants her people to live. And so she asks a strategic question and says, can we have a banquet? Can we have a banquet with, with you, me, and Haman? Let's get together. And the king replies, chapter 5, verse 5, and the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we uh, may do as Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in your sight, in the sight of the king, and of it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king had said. So she says, look, we're sitting at this banquet, and for whatever reason, she's like, let's do it again. 
Now think of Haman. You have this man who is uh, you know, egotistical, he's, he's stubborn, he wants everyone to submit to him, and here he has been invited not just to one banquet with the king and the queen, just the three of them. He's now been invited to another one. Can you imagine how puffed up he was feeling? How excited he was feeling to be able to have this moment and then the queen in his presence requests him again. So Haman, he, after the banquet, the first one, he is excited. He heads on his way home, but he sees Mordecai again. And this induces rage in his heart. And he goes home, and yes, he brags to his family and his friends about the banquet and the banquet to come, but Mordecai is still on his mind. Chapter 5, verse 12, And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. And he's like, this is amazing. I'm getting this opportunity to be in the presence of the king and the queen. And in verse 13 it says, And yet all of this was worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all of, her, all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanging upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And the idea, idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Gallows are this, this thing that's constructed that they would hang someone on that they would ultimately die from. And this one in particular is 75 feet tall. They didn't just want normal gallows. They wanted this to be public humiliation. Of course, Haman has no idea the relationship between Haman, I'm sorry, between Mordecai and between Esther. They are relatives, that he is essentially her father, having raised her. And so they give him this idea, not a good idea, but they give him this idea to go to the king the next morning and say, I need Mordecai, so I'm going to hang him on these gallows. But God, in his sovereignty, keeps the king awake that night. Do you ever wake up and wonder why you're awake? I mean, I don't want to get super spiritual, but then again, I am preaching a sermon. If you wake up and you don't know why, begin to ask. God is still speaking. Do you believe that? God is still speaking through his word. He is still, he is still inviting us to come and to seek after him. The king in this case is not considering the things of God, but he is being awoken, and it is God's sovereign will that this is taking place. And it says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, And on that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Maybe this is a way for him to sort of count sheep, right? He's just, this will be the way to bore me. This will be the way for me to just kind of numb my mind. And so they begin to read to him the accounts of the memorable deeds and Mordecai's actions of years before. Some say three, four, five years previous had taken place and how he was spared of an assassination by this Jewish man that was sitting outside of the temple, Mordecai. And he hears this and he says, has he been rewarded? 
Have, have we done anything for him? Like, well, I have, we have him written in the book, but has anything been done on the account of Mordecai's actions? Verse 2 of chapter 6, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about uh, Big Thana and Theresh, the, the two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. Again, years have passed by. There hasn't been a reward And so I assume the king was able to to go to sleep, but this thought was on his mind. And so Haman, and the next morning, returns to the king's palace. Okay? Now remember, these guys have two different things on their mind, but the same person. So Haman enters into the king's palace, and he walks up because he's, of course, got a feast that's coming up. He's got a banquet that's going to take place, but he's going to do what his wife and friends have said. He's going to bring this to his attention early so he can just get Mordecai done with, so he can enjoy this meal. And so he goes as though to present to the king the gallows that have been prepared and the man that he would like hung from him. And before he can say anything... He walks into the presence of the king in chapter 6, verse 6. It says, And so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, he's just thinking this, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is a good story. This is what you want. You want a story that, that has you know, your villain, you have your, your bizarre or chaotic situation, and then you have your unlikely hero. And here Haman has heard this word, and he has heard the king saying, if you were to honor someone with the highest honor, how would you honor him? And Haman is thinking, this is going to be good. This is going to be real good. I'm going to tell them exactly what I would want. And so Haman says to the king in verse 7, For the man whom the king delights to honor, oh, that man, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on the horse head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square in the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He's saying, listen, if you would just take that man that you want to honor, stick him in your clothes and on your horse, and have your next highest official just lead him through, saying, look at this guy. The honor that he is receiving And so the king thinks about this. And the king thinks, this is a wonderful idea. And you can just imagine Haman just sitting there, just like, all right, you know, making sure, like he's sizing up, maybe that might need to get hemmed a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, I just imagine he's a short king, right? Uh, And he's trying to imagine what it's going to look like and the horse, you know, he's got many horses. Which horse is he going to let me ride? And the king says to Haman in verse 10, hurry, take the robes and the horse. Yes, yes. Just as you have said, okay, all right? And then go get Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king gate and let nothing 
that you have said, or leave out nothing that you have mentioned. What? Right? Haman's surprised in this moment. I mean, he was coming with Mordecai on his mind, and now and he is the, going to be the one who's going to lead this horse through the city saying these things. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a twist. It's almost as if, as if what the enemy has meant for evil, God will make good. Right? It's almost as if the very things that you see that, that seem so oppressive or seem so dangerous or seem like the world is against you, it's almost like God can take that very thing and make it good unto his purpose. What an amazing twist. And so Haman has no choice but to lead the parade. I like to think he had the pooper scooper too. That's for you kids. This, of course, infuriates Haman. Verse 13 of 6, And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. And then the wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, then you will not overthrow him, but will surely fall before him. They are saying that the king has just honored Mordecai, a Jew, in this regard, and you have sent out this decree to have all of these Jews. This is a conflict of interest, and it is going to go very, very badly for you, Haman. Talk about the support too, right? I mean, just the day before, they were like, go and do these things. And then he does those things and they come back and they're like, you've made a big mistake. Friends, huh? And so the tables have turned. But Haman's still going to go back to the banquet later that day and he does in chapter 7. Then Queen Esther answers while they're at the banquet, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for one for my wish and my people for my request. And she says, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. This, of course, infuriates the king. Who would threaten the, king, the queen's life, he wonders. I mean, he is, he is filled with rage. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this thing? It's just the three of them sitting there. You ever been in an uncomfortable meal? I have. Not, not to this degree. Actually, not even... Close to this degree, I can. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this: the first, the first date I ever took Kelsey on, we we were basically kids, right? I could drive at least, but we we went out, and I thought I'm going to, we're going to go fine dining tonight. This is on my dime, and I'm I'm paying, and we're we're going out, and so I of course go to O Charlie's as one would, right? And we we go and we sit down, and I am an absolute nervous wreck sitting there having no idea this is going to be my future wife, right? But in my mind, I'm thinking it, right? I was early on commitment, I know. But anyway, so I'm sitting there across from her, and she's sitting there, and we're trying to think of things to say, and she's got this salad, because that's what, ladies, that's what you order on your first day, right? So she's sitting there, and she says to me, could you cut this salad? <laughs> what? 
can I cut the salad? I mean, I'm shaking right now. I, and now you want me to do something to your food. And so she's got this big, you know, oh, Charlie's dead and skimpy on the salad. And they've, uh, she passes me this salad. And I just remember taking a knife and the fork. And you can, I promise you, lettuce is just going all over the table. I am just trying to cut up this salad. Nervous, uncomfortable. But oh man, not as uncomfortable as Haman was seeing the rage of his king, seeing the request of his queen, and knowing that he was the one who had initiated this decree. Where is he? Who is he? Who would dare do this thing? And Esther says, well, he's sitting right here. Haman was terrified. Haman misrepresented the Jewish people and the king had signed off on the destruction of even his own queen. And the king in his drunken rage, he, he needs a moment to cool off. He goes out into the garden and he's walking around and, and it says that when he comes back in, Haman is there and he's petitioning to Esther and he's over her and he's saying like, please spare me. Well, Haman, or the king thinks that Haman's assaulting Esther, and he says, will you even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And he does away with him, and it says that immediately they put a sack over Haman's head, and the king takes him away, and he says, remember the gallows that were prepared for Mordecai, put Haman on them. And they did. Just one day, Haman goes from having been elevated to second in command to now being hung from the very gallows that he had built. Do not let the world convince you that our God is weak. I know people say, like, you know, God's not dead. No, he's not. He is certainly alive, and he is stronger than any force that has ever come on the face of this earth. And one day he turned it And then Mordecai is elevated. In chapter 9, you see that he is made, put into this special place, second in command, that he is brought into the king's house, that his fame is spread throughout of the hero now, Mordecai, and how he grew more and more powerful, it says. But the king could not undo the first decree. This is the, this is the dilemma that he has. Is he, he's speaking of these things. He's like, I've already put my signet on it. This is the first decree. That, there, that death is coming to you. This is the law. He says, I can't undo the old one, but I can bring a new one. I can bring a way that you might defend yourselves. And so he allows them to do that. And so the king elevates Mordecai and his people, and the people were afraid of him and the Jewish people. However, there were some on the day, March 7th, 473 B.C., that everyone came, that those who wanted to attack the Jews in that time were they were allowed to by the order of the king, and those who wanted to defend themselves were allowed to by the order of the king. And over 75,000 of the Jewish enemies were slain on that day, and the king backed them up. This was not how Haman planned it. The Jewish community still today celebrate this time of the year. It's called the Feast of 
Purim. This is, Purim is the, the Hebrew word for lots because Haman had cast a lot to see which day that this should be enacted. Esther 9.26, it says, Therefore they called these days Purim. And after the term Pur, therefore because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them. And so again, we see that Mordecai is exalted and second in command. Chapter 10, verse 3, from Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and, popul- and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all of his people. Where is God in this book? If you notice, not one time is God mentioned. I've just read to you a lot of scripture. In fact, Esther is only one of two books in the entire Bible where God's name is not mentioned at all. And yet he is all in it. He is the main character. It isn't, he isn't mentioned, but he, certainly his hand is mentioned in every single detail that his providence is at work. 23 million women and Esther is chosen. Mordecai being placed at the exact same spot that he could hear this plot to assassinate the king the night that the king can't sleep and he reads of Mordecai the night before his presumed death and even Haman's life is directed by the king of kings. There are no miracles in the book of Esther, and yet the entire book is a miracle. The message for you this morning is that as we go through life and we try to take care of every single detail, know that the great architect is over it all, that he is still in control. Esther is a wonderful story. But it isn't the ultimate story. The Jewish people would be spared in this moment, but they wouldn't be relieved from their sin. The king never really shows any sort of repentance, and ultimately he's assassinated by one of his own advisors. Esther was called at a particular time to intercede for the people of God. But there is one who intercedes who is far greater. Romans 8.34, it says this, Who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died? More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. Have you forgotten that God is in control? Has your situation made you think that, God, where are you? Like, God, do you not see my marriage right now? Or do you not see my, my children in this situation? Or do you not see the things that I'm dealing with at work? Or do you not, where are you in this nation, God? 
He is sovereign over everything. Someone once asked Sinclair Ferguson, my favorite pastor, he, he, preacher, he, he asked, someone asked him, does God care about the little things? And he said in his amazing Scottish accent, sister, everything is a little thing to God. And yes, he cares. He cares. He cares. The, the thing that is, seems like it is unbelievably impossible for you, he cares. Mordecai had no idea that the next morning he was going to hang from the gallows, and he wasn't because God intervened. I know I've said it before, but I, I just imagine that heaven is going to be a place where maybe God will reveal to us all the times that he has spared us. He has spared you. There's so many beautiful moments of allegory that we can use here, how the, the old covenant works and how it destroys us and how the new covenant comes. And, and the king then said, you may defend yourself, but our king says, I will defend you. The pivotal moment, I believe, in, is in chapter 5 where Esther is able to stand in the presence of the king and he upholds his scepter and says, you're welcome let me tell you, this king one day died and was no longer king and had to stand before the king. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It never ends. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, that it is God who chooses who will be in his presence. So if at any moment you thought, wow, I've done this, I've gotten to this place, I have ushered myself into this other world in the presence of a holy God, it is God, it is Christ Jesus who holds the scepter. God will judge the heart and the King of Kings will have the final word. Do not bow to a lesser king. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.